This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist. I live and work out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I've been doing self work now over six years. And I'm so glad all of you are here. 2023 is the year that I'm reaching out to get to know you better and to find ways to get to know you or help you in some way if I can. So stay tuned at the end of this episode for exciting news about just how that's going to happen. Today, we're focusing on what mental or emotional issues are connected with being drawn into relationship with someone with narcissistic traits. We'll briefly cover the different types of narcissism. You can find lists that include anything from four to seven subtypes, but we'll keep it simple. And then we'll venture into the why. Why might you not recognize such a manipulative and potentially emotionally abusive pattern? Here's a huge hint. What you live as a child becomes your normal, even if it's far from healthy or even truly normal. It's what you experience, so that's your normal. And you can bring that definition into your adulthood as you seek out relationships. We'll talk more about that in this upcoming episode. The listener voicemail is from a married woman who explains that her husband demands that they remain in a non-sexually intimate relationship or a dating relationship, as she calls it, so that he can fall back in love with her. But this has lasted 20 years. (laughs) Is it emotionally manipulative or could she be married to someone who's more comfortable with a sexless marriage and that could be driving this dynamic? I'll offer some of my own ideas. I just drank my morning glass of Athletic Greens. My husband and I have a routine about it to help us both remember, and so I highly recommend it to you, and here's their message. What better time than now to decide that you're going to do something for yourself in 2023 that will only add to your sense of well-being, where you can begin every single day with an act of true self-care, not a bubble bath, not even a therapy session, But by drinking one glass full of 75 high-quality minerals, vitamins, probiotics, adaptogens, and whole food source superfoods, which support everything from your gut to your immune system to your energy level. I use it every day and love this habit because if you're like me, self-care can get lost in a day full of kids, work, meals, and whatever else comes along. AG1 knows that people who listen to self-work are seeking to make their lives better. So Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. Become your own green machine in the first hour you're up and around. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash self-work. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash self-work to take ownership of your health in 2023 and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Okay, so let's talk about narcissism. 
First, it's not a mental illness or disorder. It's what's called a personality disorder or a way of being that can cause impairments in functioning at work, at school, with self-esteem and identity, and of course, in relationships. There are 10 of them, and they're grouped into what are called clusters. The cluster that narcissism falls into is cluster B, where it's grouped with borderline, histrionic, and antisocial personality disorders. These particular disorders are disorders of emotional regulation, or as one article put it, a person with this type of personality disorder has difficulties regulating their emotions and behavior. Others may consider their behavior dramatic, emotional, or erratic. The main hallmarks of narcissism include grandiosity, self-focus, an inflated sense of self-worth, and a strong need for praise and recognition. What's important to remember, however, is that there's a lot of extreme insecurity underneath all that. You can have traits of narcissism without experiencing the full spectrum of the disorder, and that's so important to remember. A lot of us are now saying, oh, she's a narcissist or he's a narcissist, when really maybe they have some narcissistic traits, but they don't fully meet the criteria for a personality disorder. Some have considered even that if you have a bit of it, that can be what's termed adaptive. But this characterological disorder has been intensely studied in recent years, somewhat due, I think, to social media attention on self-focus, self-love, etc., and trying to determine what is healthy self-concern versus true narcissistic concern. I've talked often about the difference between healthy self-awareness that's coupled with assertiveness versus self-centeredness or selfishness. And, you know, I'll include that episode link in your show notes for any of you who might be interested in listening to the podcast or reading the article. But what are the subtypes of narcissism? Let's briefly go over them. These are from a really good article I found in Very Well Health, which you have in your show notes. And I'm going to give you examples from my own practice so you can make these descriptions real in your own mind. It's not just a bunch of words tied together, right? The first is called overt narcissism or agentic narcissism. I don't even know what the word agentic means. And frankly, I didn't have time to look it up. But overt narcissism is what you might think of as the classic and most obvious form of narcissistic personality disorder. Someone experiencing overt narcissism is excessively preoccupied with how others see them. They're often overly focused on status, wealth, flattery, and power due to their grandiosity and sense of entitlement. Most are high achieving and deeply sensitive to criticism, no matter how slight. In some ways, these are the folks who are maybe a bit easier to see, but who also can pull you into a relationship by turning that very powerful focus onto you, at least for a while, a practice called love bombing. But eventually, they'll need for you to become the planet whose path is to revolve around their sun, and they'll continue to seek out and need other sources of affirmation other than you. But what's also fascinating is that when the narcissist senses you're beginning to question whether you should continue your orbit around their gloriousness, then they arrive with flowers or compliments or attention or a text or how are you, let's get together, I miss you, to make sure you're going to stay put. I see this a lot in my practice. It's really sort of amazing. It's like they have a sixth sense of when you're beginning to go off their radar and they want to pull you back in again. You know, is it malintent? Is it to hurt you? It can be. 
it's also, though, a part of what keeps them feeling important, what keeps them feeling at least where they can regulate their emotions. So in some ways, it's their responsibility, but it's hard for them to see as well. Narcissists do not come into therapy very often. So I have some empathy for them is what I'm trying to say. But at the same time, I realize that the damage they can do to someone else can be severe. Covert narcissism is the second one, also known as closet narcissism or vulnerable narcissism. And it's not as obvious as overt narcissism. Like other people with NPD, someone with covert narcissism has an inflated sense of self-importance and craves admiration. However, someone living with covert narcissism might display more subtle or passive negative behaviors. Rather than bragging about themselves or demanding respect, they might engage in blaming, shaming, manipulation, or emotional neglect to get what they want and keep the focus on themselves. They might also see themselves as a victim. I remember a couple I saw fairly briefly years ago. Something didn't add up. He was a nice guy, definitely the alpha in the relationship. She was much more soft-spoken, even quiet, but was much more effective in getting things done that they both said were their goals. In session, he was occasionally condescending to her, and she'd glance at me every now and then when he would do this. So my gut told me to ask for individual sessions with both of them. In his, he talked about how she was dragging her feet and painted himself the victim, was often not sexually interested. They had a child, and she was pretty centered on the child. When she came in, she sort of looked down at her feet and didn't quite know what to say. So after some coaxing, I did find out what didn't feel right. She was actually being sexually abused in her marriage. I worked to empower her, and then, with her permission, talked openly in session with both of them about the abuse, as abuse. He refused to come back, and she did end filing for divorce. Her eyes had been opened. So I think that's a good example of this more vulnerable narcissism or covert narcissism. Again, he didn't strike me at the beginning as having these problems with entitlement, but something didn't feel right. It was more than a regular dynamic. I could tell there was something going on that was under the surface. Let's talk about the third kind of narcissism called antagonistic narcissism. While all people with narcissistic traits might be overly concerned with how they appear to others, these folks are particularly concerned with coming out on top. It's defined by a sense of competitiveness, arrogance, and rivalry. Someone with antagonistic narcissism might try to exploit others to get ahead. They might put others down or start arguments in an attempt to gain the upper hand or just appear dominant. I'd have to do some thinking about how this is different than just someone who always needs to win. Perhaps we've found a new label for it. Kind of a jerk. Again, this makes me remember that narcissism has at its core insecurity, lack of an ability to soothe your painful emotions. So antagonistic narcissists go unregulated and uncensored, and they end looking like someone who's out to beat everyone else. Unfortunately, in some organizations and companies, this dog-eat-dog mentality is rewarded. So we're naming five different types of narcissism, and we're on the fourth, called communal narcissism. I think this one's fascinating. 
Like someone living with covert narcissism, someone experiencing communal narcissism might not appear to be ego-driven at all. They might initially come across as selfless or even as a martyr, but their internal motivation is to earn praise and admiration, not really help others. To that end, these people often place themselves at the forefront of social causes or communities, usually as the leader or the face of a movement. People with communal narcissism see themselves as more empathetic, caring, or selfless than others, and often display moral outrage. One woman comes to mind who came into therapy unwillingly, she said, but her husband, who was very well known in the community, thought she needed to. She was isolating and had become very, very anxious. Initially, she seemed very self-effacing and selfless. She was herself a true pillar of the community and did for others constantly. She greatly minimized the real trauma she'd had in her life and painted her role models as perfect. She would say to me, I'll never be who they were. But she'd feel abandoned if what she thought was right didn't happen, especially in her family. Or when her adult children didn't make choices she approved of, she becomes self-destructive, again, sort of passively, for example. She wouldn't eat while still going about her many duties in the community and tiring herself out and getting sick. She had little insight into any of this. And actually, she left therapy very abruptly when her family began, quote-unquote, shaping up or basically doing what she had wanted them to do to make her more central in their lives. So these are complicated, complex people. But unfortunately, she wouldn't consider that some of the trauma that she had experienced in her own childhood had something to do with this need for her to be so central to her family and to the community. Then there's malignant narcissism, which is often seen as the most severe or potentially abusive form of NPD. Someone with malignant narcissism has the same egocentric self-absorption and sense of superiority as other narcissists, but they also have traits associated with antisocial personality disorders, such as aggression, paranoia, and a complete lack of empathy. They might even have a sadistic streak. These are people who believe the rules don't apply to them. In fact, the rules don't exist. And they typically don't care if others get hurt by them. They don't come to therapy unless ordered by a judge. The people they hurt come to therapy. Before we go forward and talk about why you or someone you love might be attracted to someone with narcissistic traits, let's hear from BetterHelp. Maybe you thought you'd go into therapy in 2023, but you're finding it harder to take that step. And BetterHelp makes that easy. Twenty twenty two is ending, which was a hard year for many, as they're trying to heal from the impact of the pandemic. And now we're welcoming twenty twenty three with more people than ever needing help with anxiety and depression. The most common problem I hear from those seeking therapy is how hard it is to find a therapist. BetterHelp solves those problems. After you make the first contact, their standard is to offer names of therapists to you in less than two days. And you can talk to them in a first session to see if it's a good fit. If so, you're on your way. But if not, rather than going through an awkward call or email, you simply let BetterHelp know and they'll ask what it was you didn't like and find someone else for you. You can text, chat, or talk virtually. All of those avenues are open to you. I'm a therapist because I got good therapy. I know how much of a difference it can make. I reached out and so can you. 
Here's BetterHelp's offer for self-work listeners. 10% off your first month of sessions if you use this link. BetterHelp.com slash self-work. There's never a better time than today to reach out and get help. BetterHelp.com slash self-work. Now let's focus on why you may not see the warning signs of these subtypes of narcissism and what might be happening for you. I offered a hint at the beginning of the episode, but let me name six factors that could lead to just that. Number one, you don't label abuse as abuse. Sadly, I hear this so much of the time. Why does it cause me sadness? For two reasons. Because I've recognized as a therapist just how much abuse there is in our world, how many children are maltreated by their families or people that they trust. But also, of course, my sadness is for the person who's been abused and then chooses others that will repeat the pattern. Here's an example. After years off and on, mostly off, of seeing one woman who declared in our first session that her relationship with her spouse was not a problem, in fact, was especially sexually satisfying, she revealed just how controlling he actually was, again, after years He'd order for her at a restaurant, choosing something he wanted to eat, and then he would eat most of it. He chose particular colors of nail polish that she was allowed to wear, and there were many, many others, some of them including demeaning sexual demands. She had seemingly childlike ways of getting back at him for this control. So once we identified these and then she stopped doing them, she discovered her real anger. But let's take a minute to see what made her vulnerable to this. Again, a little trigger warning here. We're talking about sexual abuse. Her biological father had been sexually abusive to her and called their relationship normal for years, which she believed for years. Her version of normal wasn't normal at all. It was all about control and grossly inappropriate control. That was her normal. So, You can see how she'd be attracted to a partner who also needed to control her. She didn't know to be angry about that. She didn't know to identify that as abuse. Here's the second factor that's closely tied to the first of why you might not see the warning signs. You're accustomed to rigid rules or control. Now, the example I just gave reflects this, but these two aren't necessarily both present. For example, perhaps the control in your family relationship was not abusive per se, but you were told you couldn't go to a certain college but needed to attend the one where all your family had gone. Or you were told you'd follow a certain religion or certain cultural expectation. You'd wear a certain type of clothing. I had a female patient once who'd been reared in a faith that required women to wear certain undergarments, and she was questioning those rules now. So having someone enter your life who imposed their own rules on you might again seem very normal to you, even if those rules seemed always to fall in their favor. Give and take, compromise, negotiation, none of that happens. But it hadn't happened before, so again, you're just accustomed to it. Let me make this clear. It is not for me to judge any kind of religion or culture that has these more rigid expectations. All I'm saying as a mental health professional is that what that can lead to is you not seeing the warning signs of now you're also being controlled in another relationship. Let's talk about the third factor that might prevent you from seeing the warning signs. You don't claim your own value because you didn't experience love. 
I'm going to quote from a book I'm reading right now by Catherine Schaeffler. It's a wonderful book, The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control. It's eloquent and very poignant, and I am quoting, Children who don't feel loved will do anything to earn that love. You need a distraction? I'll become a project. You need to not be sad? I'll be happy enough for the whole family. You need me to be less of a burden? I won't even make a sound when I chew. Everything a child who does not feel loved does is done to answer this question. Am I worth loving yet? These words tragically hit home for me, and I'm sure they will for you as well. So imagine if this is how you've grown up, what you might feel if you meet this highly successful, suave, charming person or someone who seems to care for others and is always doing for others. Your value would go up immensely simply because of their interest in you. Never mind that the relationship is all about them. Again, you're kind of accustomed to that. Because you don't know your own worth. Because you weren't loved well. Number four, you take lots of responsibility. Someone with narcissistic dynamics who takes little to no responsibility for their actions or they blame others or see themselves as underappreciated will seek out those who take lots of responsibility, even blame. If there's one little shred of evidence that maybe you cut them short or maybe you got a little impatient, maybe you yelled or maybe you forgot something, then the narcissist will blame and the over-responsible person, you, will tell yourself, well, they're right, I'm flawed, I'm so lucky they're with me, and the deal is sealed. So the very fact that you take a lot of responsibility is something that works against you. You take too much. Here's number five. You're not street smart or you're just naive. A thing that growing up in bad circumstances, even dangerous ones, can do is make you wary of hidden agendas. You grow up knowing that not everyone can be trusted and others have to earn your trust and earn your loyalty. That can, of course, be a problem in and of itself. But you may be more likely to recognize narcissism when it comes along. Maybe not. But certainly, someone who was highly protected or didn't run into people who didn't care if they were harmed are going to be naive when it comes to recognizing pathology in others or some sort of hidden agenda. They may be much more seduced by the idea they're needed and jump in quickly to help or to heal and then get way over their heads before they realize what's hit them. Seeing manipulation, especially when you're the target of it, takes some emotional and mental maturity and some life experience. I've worked with several people in their 20s who not had a relationship with one parent due to a non-amicable divorce or one of their parents even alienating them from the other. The child gets put in the middle while also only hearing one side of the story. What they realize as they themselves mature is that they were manipulated into believing that the truth lay only with one parent's story, when both had been at fault for the problems between them. One parent might have been narcissistic or just mean or whatever. That could be right, but that doesn't always mean a decent relationship with both parents isn't possible. Adult-to-adult relationships are no different, and it can take some time before you begin to piece together your own perspective if you are manipulated. So here's the last idea about what might make it hard for you to see the warning signs of narcissism. You chose to ignore your gut and instead denied or discounted a clue that there was a problem, and now you feel stuck. 
my picture should appear right by this particular facet. As a living, breathing example of this issue, I have done it. And one time, I knew I was doing it. I knew I was ignoring it. But I was headstrong and stubborn and didn't want to see what was right in front of me. Now, shame can emerge from this, but also you can continue to deny since admitting a mistake seems impossible. This can be part of any relationship, but when in a relationship with a narcissist, while you're regularly getting slammed or shamed or blamed for lots of things, to turn around, look in the mirror and say, you know, I forgive you for making this mistake may seem impossible. You can feel stuck trying to make something right that's never going to be unless the other person, and remember the other person is one with narcissism, takes their own responsibility. And as we've talked about, that is highly unlikely, not impossible, but without seeking help or treatment, pretty unlikely. So let's review reasons for being attracted to someone with narcissistic traits. You don't label abuse as abuse. You are accustomed to rigid rules and control. You don't know how to claim your value because you weren't loved well. You're overly responsible. You're naive. And last, you can't forgive yourself. A word before I go to someone who's recognized their own tendencies toward narcissism. First, good for you. Trying to understand and gain insight into how you became so vastly insecure, how your emotions are governing you instead of you governing them and regulating them, how your relationships with other people are being negatively impacted can take great courage. Here at Self Work, I've heard from people who are trying to do just that, and I applaud them. So if you're ready to take that responsibility, good for you. Speak pipe message from drmargaretrutherford.com. Now, let's get to the featured voicemail. Hello. I've been married and with a man for almost two decades. This is a very conditional relationship. Today was the first day I heard your podcast and read what you wrote today, the article. In there, it was the other night he stated to me that if you want me to fall in love with you, then you're going to have to have a non-physical relationship with me and once that grows then we can have I can then fall in love with you otherwise I can't fall in love with you and I've tried to do what he's asking me we've been doing this for almost 20 years I really felt I need to draw the line with this because if there's no unconditional love and I'm always having to measure up and constantly dating and dating and dating being married I don't see where that is going to work It came to me as I listened that although I can certainly hear the listener's understandable emotional distress and growing sense of distrust and anger, I wondered what has worked, or at least worked well enough, for this couple to have stayed together for 20 years. That's a long time. So something may have been going right, but this part of the relationship was obviously a problem. Her husband's choice to fall back in love shouldn't hinge on demanded behaviors. That's a horrible setup and will only lead to resentment, which it has. I talk a lot with couples about getting out of sync with one another, which happens quite a lot over longer marriages or partnerships. Your needs aren't aligning, you're experiencing physical changes or the demands of parenting or a job that's taking up a lot of time. And you may not feel like you're in love with your partner when you're out of sync. You can begin to talk about, hey, we're not really in a good place with one another, or better yet, I don't feel like I'm in a good place with you. I wonder if you feel the same. That can be a good conversation to have to try to get back in sync. 
Now, this couple may not know how to have that conversation. It sounds like they don't, but it seems like it'd be a good idea to try. But let's focus on the sexual part of this. Somehow or another, and it's a little unclear, the husband is connected having sex with his wife as not possible without a feeling he seems to not feel anymore, that of being in love with her, and is telling her it's her responsibility to fix it, to make him fall in love with her, which I'm not sure how you would do anyway. So a flag goes up for me that he could be having sexual desire or physical medical issues that he's keeping to himself and playing this game of falling in love to keep hiding. It's been pointed out to me that some couples prefer not to have sex and consider themselves even asexual and love one another without sex being a part of their relationship. That's fine and normal for them. Maybe that's what he would prefer. So that's one possibility. It's also true that sexual desires can be changed by many factors, medicines, illnesses, hormonal changes and fluctuations, physical energy, history of abuse, pregnancies, miscarriages, porn addiction, stress, conflict, age, whatever. But this is my major point. It seems likely that there's much that's not being talked about clearly in this situation, and that needs rectifying. Whether what's good or what's changed or what goals each has for themselves in the marriage, that needs to be discussed, rather than continuing this battle of earning someone's love or desire. That is not going to work. I wish good luck to both of them. I said there was some exciting news, and I'm going to quickly tell you about it. I'm starting an Instagram weekly discussion beginning March the 5th, and we're calling it Self Work Sundays. All you have to do is join me on Instagram at Dr. Margaret Rutherford. That's Instagram.com slash Dr. Margaret Rutherford, and I'm right there. Self Work Sundays will go live on Insta at 4 o'clock Central Standard Time. That means you can ask me questions, join in a discussion with me. There won't be any cameras, which kind of freaks out some people. I'll keep on announcing this, but I hope that many of you will join in. So just join me on Instagram. Also, a study group on perfectly hidden depression is beginning February the 22nd at noon Central Standard Time. And that will be on Zoom. Check in with my Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work to learn more. All you need to do is buy a book. The study group is free. Again, in 2023, I'm trying to figure out ways to connect with you more get to know you better, help if I can. And I'm so excited about these directions. I hope you'll join me on Self Work Sundays at 4 o'clock Central Standard Time, beginning March the 5th. Thank you for being here today. As always, please take very good care of you, of your loved ones, and of your community. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.